So you'd describe the experience you were trying to capture and they'd look at you basically like we look at poets, right? right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> sure. I'm sure you like what you're reading. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to independent game developer John Ingold, who co-founded Inkle. John is best known for his work in interactive fiction, including All Roads, 80 Days, and the Sorcery series. Okay, so what I usually like to start with for people is, um, what's the first game you remember growing up? Video game, presumably, but it doesn't Yeah, so... Um... When we were growing up, we bought an Amstrad when I was about eight, Mm -hmm. and it came with four games, which I guess were the first games that I played, because I don't think I played any video games before we got a computer at home. No arcades or anything? No, I was never into arcades. And I had a couple of elder brothers, and they were, yeah, they weren't into them, so I wasn't into them. Yeah. I don't think I played any games at friends' houses. Oh, no, you know, actually, I'm wrong. That flippy thing, the flippy Donkey Kong with the LCD screen, okay. that was the first game I played. Someone <laughs> okay. had one of them when I was about seven, right. where you jumped over the barrels and it made bleepy noises. Right. And then when I was about that age, we went to Japan and we bought one of those, which was about bouncing ninjas off other ninjas okay. that my brother had that yeah, he yeah. could gain absolutely astronomical scores on because mm-hmm. he would sit there. I can still remember the bleeping, but it made it had a particular pattern for okay. no bleeping. That was the first game I played. Right. The first proper game I played, <laughs> which wasn't like, uh, you know, I don't even, what is that? That's like one bit graphics, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Um, on or off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It was for the Amstrad and there were four games with it. There was a Bruce Lee, uh, kicking and platforming game okay. there was a there was a world there was a wwf wrestling game with, in cga graphics where you could jump out of the ring and hit people with a chair that we kind of loved um there was one other that i can't remember now and then there was a game called psi5 trading company which i remember so fondly i've heard that name before actually. yeah a few people in the world have heard of it i don't know why like it was a it was a space trading game and you crewed up a spaceship and then you flew off to try and carry something from one place to another place. And you inevitably got attacked by pirates. Everything went to hell. Like elite? No, no, right. No, it was, it was done entirely on communication screens. You were the captain and these people would pop up and they'd have a face and they'd sort of tell you, you know, the engine's on fire. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember what sort of decisions you could take, but inevitably you would lose one of them and then you'd lose another one and then the whole ship would fall apart and you'd be boarded by pirates. I don't think we ever saw the ending of that game. I think it probably didn't even end. I think you bought things and then crewed up and then sailed again, but of course we never managed a single trip on this thing. <laughs> um, but it did genuinely have characters and you could like choose who you flew with and there was you know, the flirty alien one and the sort of the grumpy one and... Yeah, that really stuck with me with this kind of one-bit art style, which is particularly ambitious. I loved games back in those days because they didn't do much, but what they did, they did with such flair. Mm-hmm. Like they managed to get quite a lot out of nothing at all. Yeah, are there some other ones from that period that really stick out in your mind? So after that, we started getting a lot of hooky shareware games, and uh-huh. I don't remember very many of them. But the what did we play? We played Rick Dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, which was a bouncing platformer game, which basically was the same design as Tomb Raider, only it was 2D. Okay. And we never got very far in that because there were there were traps on every screen and a really harsh reload yeah. um, criteria. 
And then we got Rogue, the original mm-hmm. Rogue. And oh, which, wow. I okay. kind of amazing that like roguelike is now a genre because sure. like loads of people know about roguelikes, but not that many people I think have actually played Rogue. I've never even seen I was Rogue. Utterly so. addicted to Rogue. It is brilliant. Really? It's so good. Yeah, like so a lot of people know NetHack, which yeah. is like Rogue on steroids. Right. Like has a million rules, and I never got into it. But Rogue, the original is it's pretty streamlined like it's not very streamlined but yeah it's got so many really strong concepts it's entirely turn-based all the monsters were represented by letters of the alphabet so you could be attacked by the letter a and that was an aquator that damaged your armor and b was a bat and c was a centaur and they were rock hard and if you met a t you had to run away fast because they could kill you in a single hit regardless of how strong you were how did you figure out what everything was you like, played and you died and you, you replayed just, and you died would you like write the stuff down or was there like a help yeah no we, we definitely kept notebooks and notebooks of really? stuff okay. and it was full of secrets so it would randomize itself every time so, so was, i suppose like the first time you saw a tea or whatever you'd be like oh yeah you'd walk straight up what's to it, gonna happen and then you'd punch it and then it would say you know you swing and like it, it did everything with adjectives it would say like that was a good hit on the troll and you'd have no idea <laughs> absolutely no idea how much health this troll had left and then right. the troll would say the troll barely hits you you have died <laughs> <laughs> you'd be like okay it leaves an impression yeah i do remember games like that did have that type of it's kind of like the zork thing right? but it was brilliant it was, like, yeah. it was absolutely and it was so creative like the p was a phantom and you couldn't see it it was utterly invisible so you didn't know where it was so why was it a p uh, well because <laughs> if you could get a ring of c invisible okay. and wear it then the p would be visible okay. but you didn't know what the rings were because they were just rings of bizarre metals unless okay. you found a way to identify them but if you put them on they were quite often cursed and they could be cursed into things like rings of weakness but also rings of make every monster in the entire level attack you straight away right. and this sort of thing um were you supposed to be able to figure out what the ring was before you put it on or this no, was just part of the game it was part of the game sometimes you just took the risk because you felt like exploring sometimes you there was a thing called a scroll of identify which would let okay. you identify one object so you'd sort of they were relatively common so you'd collect them up and identify things um but yeah. the best gimmick was the other scrolls because every scroll had a visible effect and an invisible effect so the huh. name of the scroll was randomized. When you read it, it destroyed itself, but okay. there would be a visible effect. Your hands would glow red, or you'd hear a manic chuckling in the distance. Uh-huh. And if you could identify, if you so if you could read that scroll, you could name it. So you'd name it Manic Chuckle. And then if you managed to find it again and then get a scroll of identify, you could identify it, find out what the manic chuckle was, write that down, and then in every other game from then, you knew that if you heard the manic chuckle, you knew what it actually was doing. Oh, uh, okay. Wow. And so very slowly, over games and games, you could build up this body of lore about what everything did. The reason this game stuck with me, well, the many reasons the game stuck with me, but uh, there's a ring of sea invisible, as uh-huh. I said, to see the phantoms. There's a scroll of blank paper. And I became convinced that if you could wear the ring of sea invisible and read the scroll of blank paper, there would be something on it. Because <laughs> that makes sense, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Why but else I, would they do this? I have never, I never managed a game in which I had both of those things. To get a blank scroll, you had to get two blank scrolls because, of course, you had to have one first to work out what it was. You also had to find this ring. They were both really rare. I have no idea. I still don't know if there is anything on the right. scroll bank paper. So for me, there always will be. Right, sure. Um, but I don't know what it is. But right. it probably isn't it's probably just the zero on the roulette wheel the did, scroll of blank paper did everything fit to get like did everything match the simulation in like you know if there was a rock and there was an explosion then the rock flew or you could throw everything or like you could uh, do all that stuff that you could later do in rogu- roguelikes yeah although the simulation was was way more primitive than you're giving it credit for okay. <laughs> so like there were there were corridors which and there were rooms and the rooms could be lit or dark and if they were dark you wandered around 
just with a pool of light around you, you. sort okay. of sensing the, the, uh-huh. the air. There were secret doors, but that was really just sometimes you get trapped in a room with no door and have to walk around pressing the search button repeatedly. Right. That was pretty much the level of all the simulation. Oh, there were mazes on the later levels where the corridors would turn themselves into mazes that you had to map okay. square by square. Yeah. And then I think at one point I got to one... It was all laid out. It was procedurally generated on a, a three by three grid of rooms linked by corridors. And then at one point I got onto level 20 and there was two big rooms shaped like a, like a pair of lungs, like one big room here on the left and one on the right. And then a path out the top going across and down into the bottom, which is the wrong shape for a rogue level. So I was obviously utterly thrilled when I landed right. here because I thought, well, I've must've found something, but I don't know what it is. And I still don't know what it was because I got killed by a troll <laughs> and I never got there again. So, um, could you beat rogue? I believe so. In the help screen, which listed what all the ASCII symbols meant, there was uh-huh. a thing called the Amulet of Yendor, which I think is what you were trying to get. Okay. I think the idea was to get it and then go back up through the levels again. Never right. saw it. Never got it. Wow. <laughs> no idea if it's even there. Yeah. It was yeah. like, I mean, it was super hard in that it was the kind of game, yeah, that I, I none of us ever beat yeah. over the years. I mean, I only played RPGs that era that were hard, but they were beatable, like mm. Bart's Tale or whatever. It's just, you just have to keep banging away at it right or mm. it's a totally different philosophy with rogue right like yeah it's built around like you are probably you know yeah you're, not, you're probably you're definitely gonna die <laughs> yeah yeah you're, you're definitely gonna die and it, but it was somehow it gave it this kind of infinite sense of exploration like you knew what you were getting mm-hmm. i don't know we just we never got bored of it we played that game so much yeah the only role i ever really played was eventually i played sharon the wanderer i don't know if you ever played no that. I but it's, it's like a I guess roguelikes got really popular in Japan, and then mm-hmm. they kind of like spawned this own sort type of game, and then that came back over here. And mm. so I played that, and then when I played, it, like I was like, "Oh, it's like an RPG, but it's not. It's a strategy game. It's not grindable. I mean, strategy game is not mm. the right term, but it's like you actually have to think about what's going on. Mm. You have mm. to consider mm. each of your moves very mm. carefully, right? And mm. like, yeah, and Rogue definitely had that in its own way. Yeah. So when you'd be in a room with multiple monsters, each of them would move one step after yes, you move, exactly. so your position was massively important. And yeah. eventually, you realize you need to stand in a doorway. Yeah. Because if you stand in a doorway, you can funnel them. Right. Um, and you have to think through each one, you know, each, my act, my action is going to do this and then all the, all the monsters are going to do why. So yeah, like, exactly. Know, I have to anticipate all of that. And, exactly. So um, yeah, there were lots of, there were lots of little tricks that you could develop. Um, yeah. If you got into a doorway and got the monsters to follow you, but got a leprechaun to be the monster next to you, they could steal your money, but they couldn't hurt you. But money was pointless because okay. you couldn't buy anything. <laughs> really? So you could use a leprechaun as a human shield a and keep okay. it behind you. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. So do you think, um, so roguelike is just like a huge term nowadays. Yeah. Right? It's, I mean, everything's I, like a roguelike, but yeah. like, you know, like, is it an appropriate term? Like, is FTL a roguelike? Does that like make sense in your mind? I think it does. Yeah. I like when people started talking about roguelikes, I knew what they meant and I recognized what they meant. Because um, I think that spirit of exploring the game by multiple deaths, that, uh-huh. team, that to me, that's the heart of what a roguelike is. It's, it's not a preferred genre of mine at all. But um, I think the last game I played, which was a tall roguelike, was out there, the mobile yeah. game. I would mm-hmm. think I would call that a roguelike. And sure. it had that same flavor of you set off, you don't expect to win, you don't win, but you learn a couple of tricks on the way and you see a couple of things. Um, I'm not sure... Out there was as beautifully balanced as Rogue. Rogue mm. had this amazing property that you would often die on level two, but you would sometimes get to level fifteen. Sure. And like there was a huge standard deviation. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of variance. Yeah, I remember without out there, I just felt like I was kept getting a little farther each time. Um, and at some point, I was just like, "Well, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much I want to just keep pushing this." I really loved that game, yeah. but 
yeah, I kept picking up sort of interesting snippets of technology that I never, ever got a chance to build. And after a while, I thought, I, I don't know, I would tweak the balance just a little bit <laughs> to make this a little bit more engaging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. Okay, cool. So were, um, so were video games a really big thing for you, like, growing up, like, as far as, like, so, what you used to do with your time? So the thing that happened after um, we got Rogue was we got the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game, oh, okay. the Infocom game. Mm-hmm. And video games in general were... I played a lot of them. I said, well, I played a few of them. I wouldn't say they were a massive thing for me. Like, I played Tomb Raider, and I think that was pretty much it when I was a teenager. Okay. Except for the text adventures. Sure. Like, it's terribly on brand and on point of me. <laughs> <laughs> like, we played yeah. the Hitchhiker's game. We sure. played through Shouldn't pretty be a much... surprise. But... Yeah. <laughs> we played through the whole Infocom catalogue as much as we could get really? our like hands everything. on it. Yeah. And then, uh, then there was a brief pause because we were stuck on everything. And then the internet got invented and I got mm-hmm. unstuck on everything by finding hints on sure. the internet in 96 when that was So when you say play through, them. you mean you played them, but you played them until you... Got until we had no idea what stuck. to do. Okay. Yeah, exactly. How far did you get in Hitchhikers? Uh, oh, no. Hitchhikers had hints built into it. Oh, so we okay. got through all the... So you got past the yeah. battlefish. And yeah, 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 yeah. And that's not the worst puzzle in Hitchhikers. Yeah, the I worst bet. puzzle is the space fleet that gets eaten by a dog. Oh yes, I about that's that the worst one. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, it's an amazing game though. It's it it definitely was a massive inspiration. The idea that you could just muck about and have fun, right, and still produce something that was solvable. So like the very best puzzles in Hitchhikers are perfect Douglas Adams humor in that they're ridiculous, but they also make complete sense at the same time. Yeah, um, yeah sure. Did, yeah. Did you play Deadline? I did. Yes. Okay. I was always fascinated by that game. Yeah. Like, so the concept is so interesting. I Deadline. So, yeah, for people who don't know what it is, Deadline's a, a murder mystery with active characters who walk around the scene and, and do things and, um, on a schedule, which is a design that hasn't come up very much. Like, my favourite game of all time ever is The Last Express. Sure. mentions game, which yeah. is definitely in that lineage. Yeah. But Deadline itself is not a very good game because you basically have to be in the right place at the right yeah. time all the time. Yeah. The game that... I, th- I think it was the same author. It was definitely the same section of Infocom's output. But the game before that was called The Witness, which only I think it was had after that. Actually, no, that was definitely first. Uh, it was definitely first. It only had. Three I read his, uh, Hit the Crown History recently. Yeah, and it was after that. All right. Okay. Okay. I mean, I assumed it was the prototype for Deadline. Yeah, no, Witness did, is so streamlined. I think because Witness was like more like a single room or a single couple of rooms or something. Yeah, right. right. It had a map of about six rooms, three characters. Yeah, it was so, very very tight. I mean, when I played Deadline, I was too young to like ever get. In, anywhere at all but just like the whole concept of like oh wow where i am where i am actually matters right Mm, and like mm. of course you have to do you have to do the groundhog day thing right where you're like you're you're you know you're just chunking your way through the game a couple times because you you need to know that you have to be in the hallway at one so the phone rings so you can pick it up or whatever Mm. and so that's not so great but what i remember from the what I read about it was like, yeah, the witness was their attempt to like, okay, we have this idea, let's make it more playable. Oh, really? Right. right. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting because I, I, I always assumed the witness was the version one of the technology, and the deadline was the kind of let's blow this thing out of the water. But the witness is definitely a better game. Yeah. Like everything is telegraphed, everything makes sense, and it's I think one of the few detective games I played where I thought. I know who done it. I know how to catch them and I executed it and it worked. Right. It was one of those puzzles you could actually solve at the bus stop because you had all the information okay. in your head, which was just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, you so you could actually you could do it on and you were able to do it on your own. You didn't need to Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah so that's, that's impressive one. because when I I did yeah. finally read like the whole story of Deadline and it was like, oh man, there is absolutely no way. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this exactly. is just kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Um Did you ever play the one they did? I mean, this must have definitely been after it because I'm pretty sure it was when they extended their engine. Uh, I think it was called Suspect. 
Yes. It's like a masked ball. Right. I didn't, I didn't play that, but I know what that, you're talking about. That's completely mental. There okay. are sort of 15 characters all oh, moving geez. around the place. It's just, I, I couldn't even get through. Huh. Like at that point, I actually fell off Infocom's catalog because it just got so baroque that I couldn't even engage with it anymore. Right. Um, but it's funny that they went one, you know, they they made it better and then they. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, they they were definitely showing off at some point with how clever they could be. Yeah. Well, what's um, your? I mean, what do you feel like is the best Infocom game? Like, what's the one that like you would so, hold up as the? That's so most difficult. For you? Um, yeah, that's really hard. I mean, I re- there are so many that come back to me for different reasons that it's hard to pick a favorite i mean hitchhikers was the funniest no sure. it wasn't leather goddess as a phobos was mm. the funniest okay um i think i always had a soft spot for uh no you know what plundered hearts it's got to oh, be plundered hearts plundered hearts is stunningly good because yeah. plundered hearts partly it's one of the few that manages to put its fiction above its puzzle solving at all times okay. the whole way through right but when i think back to that game i don't i don't remember a single puzzle i don't remember a single moment of friction what i remember is dressing up and dancing at the governor's ball sure. and like hiding behind a door and whacking someone on the head with a box in order to escape like right. i remember i remember moments of swashbuckling adventure which i guess were executed through puzzles and learning by death i don't know how on earth else they could have been executed right and it probably wasn't even that long but yeah that one actually when i look back on it i remember it as having been on an adventure rather than having played right. a game and that's such an achievement yeah so that's the that's the pirate game that's the pirate game, game. yeah, yeah. Um, for... and i think the lady who wrote it wrote that and nothing else yeah i was actually about to mention that like i remember it was there was a female designer amy briggs yeah, i think that's right. that's and right. she um i mean i think for various reasons i mean if infocom had all sorts of development history issues yeah but for various reasons something happened and she actually left and that was it so it's kind of bizarre that <laughs> yeah, she and I, I know a lot of people also really like that game, kind of because it kind of like its reach and exceed its grasp. I think, right? Yeah, kind of the sense that like it wasn't, it wasn't trying, you know, it wasn't trying too hard. It was just trying to like hit its theme. Really but I well. think that's, I mean that, that's what makes a good design, right? Sure. It's like if you, yeah. it it managed to make everything that the game could do part of what the game wanted to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a really good description of why it, of why it's brilliant, but without sacrificing anything about what it was. Right. Um, I think I also quite like Starcross, which was one of Dave Lebling's okay. sci-fi ones that had a couple of really clever puzzles. He was very good at systematic puzzles where you, um, you would sort of work out that something was possible because there was a gap in the design which ought to work. So you would try it and then it would give you something. And you think... Wow, if I hadn't if I hadn't really been looking at the structure of this game, I would right. never have been able to get that key that was hidden behind a wall, which I only knew was there because there was a like structure. Me like actually like you map it out or that. Yeah, thing? I mean the the example I'm thinking of, I think, was something along the lines of you go up in an elevator and one floor takes two turns to go between rather than one turn to go oh. between. So you realize there's a floor there's there, a floor but there, yeah. but it's literally looking for a gap in the design right. rather than any telegraphed. Um, thing at all so then you had to hack the lift to stop at that point force the doors open and suddenly you were on a floor that you couldn't reach before I think it was something along those lines yeah. well I can imagine when you do that you'd feel amazing yeah right exactly right. And, and of course nobody manages this but <laughs> like, you do manage it and I think I did or it was something along those lines anyway okay cool so did you play the British games too because I know they kind of have their own oh the kind like, of um, uh, the ones by the Heritage. Cambridge company yeah uh, I played some of those a lot later so after after we kind of have worked through all the Infocom games that we could, right. then the the Inform Six revolution happened, mm-hmm. and I suddenly was playing a lot of modern text adventures, um, and that kept me busy. 
uh, from 16 to 21, really. Okay. So you uh, were still playing games when you were a teenager. They were just... They were almost all text adventures. All text adventures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I we, we just wow. didn't have a good enough computer to do anything else. So really? I'd go around my friend's house and we played like Monkey Island and Discworld and things like that. So this would have been the 90s? Yeah, this was been the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Which was like kind of a like a revolutionary period for, for right. video games yeah like well just didn't... yeah it was it was it was the heyday of adventure games right now that was it i was always going around to friend's house to play adventure games i must have played quite a few of them but only in fragments really right yeah because you mentioned text adventures but you haven't mentioned sierra or lucas arts or yeah we, i think i just missed sierra mm-hmm. like i remember playing monkey island when it was not quite new anymore i think i played monkey island 2 when it was current um, I remember very vividly when the Blade Runner video game sure. came out. We all just sort of hustled around the computer to play this thing and were just stunned by right. it. Absolutely stunned. It was so beautiful and so clever. Okay. You, so you really like that one? Yeah, I really like that one. Okay. I mean, I, I, it is definitely flawed. I played it again as an adult and like the end of it peters out, but the ambition behind it and some of the some of the edges of the design are really, really impressive. Right. Um, yeah, I interviewed Luke Castle and he's like... Mm-hmm. It was the game that stood out for him as like the one he's like he's most proud of. Right. Um, oh, that's cool. And uh, yeah, because it's like uh, a different. Like sometimes they're androids and sometimes they aren't. Yeah. Well, that's it? that's the headline feature, right? Yeah, sure. that the replicants change each time, and I'm not sure I even noticed that ever happening. What always really the things that really impressed me. Yeah, that's, me what, that's about one thing he brought. Was like, so that sounds cool, but like the player wouldn't even know. Yeah. Right. right. So... It, it was a bit of a waste of time, and it introduced <laughs> a lot of bugs. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was really good at giving you a place you could go to for a reason, and then you would case that place, and then you would leave kind of quite organically, and then you wouldn't have to go back, and the story would always move forward, and it just felt really solid compared to a lot of adventure games where um, you would wander back and forth, wondering what the hell you were supposed to be looking at next. I never had that sensation playing Blade Runner. It was always moving me forward through a story and like I was earning more and more knowledge about the world, more and more places to go. But there was something hugely over-engineered about it as well. It had this incredible inventory system that recorded mm-hmm. like audio clips of everything that everyone had said, wow. which you never needed to look at ever really? because you never did any deductions. And then at some point you could, then you take it back to the police station and upload it into the police server and download the information that the other Blade Runners had been collecting in the background, whether that was simulated or not, I don't know. And then at some point you could hack your thing so that it wouldn't upload your information, but it would download their information so that you could keep things secret. There was all this stuff going on and none of it seemed to matter ever. But a lot of those ideas I keep coming back to. It's just really good uses of, of of an interface like right. your in, your inventory becomes a way of concealing information from other characters in the game mm, right that's a really cool idea sure. yeah, yeah yeah which it didn't even half play out right 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 yeah yeah well, definitely something a lot, a lot of creativity went in that game um hmm. a lot of ambition as well definitely <laughs> um <laughs> yeah Okay. And then in the wider video game space, I, I I never played any Nintendo games. We never played any console games. I don't okay. think I had any friends who had consoles either. Wow. Was um, that just a thing in Britain or like, no, like it was unusual to have consoles? I think it, it if I was to guess, I would say it was a class thing okay. and it was a function of my class. Like I was a kind of middle class kid, but uh-huh. slightly upper middle class because my dad worked as an academic. And I think it was that like, Consoles were slightly more lower class to have, okay. and then the upper class kids had computers because you could only really afford one of the two. So you definitely couldn't afford yeah. both. Someone told me once, and you'll have to tell me this is true, but like there was like it was like a class distinction between it was like the spectrum versus the 
What's the one that you had? The, the I had an Amstrad, yeah, which Amstrad. was rubbish. But um, I wonder if there was a class destroyed between the Spectrum or is the BBC and the BBC Micro? micro. That's yeah, I think it's. I think that probably is true. I, I would have been too young to know that for sure, but it's certainly true that all the people within my kind of bracket all had BBC Micro and, and uh-huh. Acorn Electrons, and then the Archimedes as well. Oh, Lemmings! That's the other game that was oh, entirely okay. my use. Bloody loved Lemmings. That cool. was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a British game, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was made up up north in Liverpool, I think, yeah. or possibly in Scotland. Yeah. Um, because it was Psygnosis. But yeah. it was... Well, it was the... Yeah, that's right. It was the people who eventually went into Grand Theft Auto, eventually. But, like... Um, yeah. <laughs> that's a strange a, thought. It's an odd, odd turn, but... Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. So you really like lemmings. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what? So what were you doing though in general in your life at this point? So you were. I mean, you were. So you were playing text adventures some, but it wasn't. You weren't like. I don't know what's the right term for it. You were doing lots of other things with your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose uh, the time we're talking about, I was sixteen. I don't uh-huh. know. I was going to school. I was doing sure. things. You know. I, I was... mean, what were? You, I guess my question is like, what were you interested in? Like, um, what was I interested in? I wanted to be a writer. Okay. I, I still want to be a writer. <laughs> so no, You're sort of a writer. Yeah, well, you know, I resent this massively because I wanted to be a normal writer. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I watched sci-fi programs and I read sci-fi books and I liked Asimov and I liked Philip K. Dick. I liked Philip K. Dick a lot. Sure. Um, and I had this sense that, like, most science fiction novels were not that good, so it was probably not that hard to write a really good one, <laughs> which is the sort of thing you think when you're 16. Okay. Um, and yeah, I resent the fact that to become a writer, I basically had to invent a subgenre and make a company for it. <laughs> like, I just That's the really to hard way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, uh, I just wanted to be published, but well, I never wrote anything any good, as perhaps. But okay. So did you did you try? Were you writing like yeah, short stories? Yeah, or absolutely. Whatever at time? I I think I wrote my first proper short story when I was sixteen, and I sent it to a local sci-fi magazine that was run by the Waterstones Bookshop chain. Which had a really was famous for its good sci-fi department, and it doesn't have it anymore. And they wrote me back this absolutely eviscerating rejection letter. <laughs> really? like it ripped every. I, I, I still remember the phrase where it said, "For your next, while your writing is not without merit, try focusing on a story which has a beginning and a middle and an end, which move together to a conclusion that has a point to make." <laughs> Wow. Um, so I pinned it up on my wall. That's all right. That was pretty Did they bad. have any idea you were 16? No, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. And then I wrote my second short story, um, I guess about a year later. I probably meant to send it to them, but they'd already folded mm. by that time. And that one I got published online somewhere. And then when I went to university, there was a short story competition that got published into a book. And anyway, that story actually made it all the way into this book. university yeah. book publication. Um yeah which was edited by Zadie Smith and oh, okay. uh, we did a little reading in the bookshop and I was utterly terrified. That, <laughs> yeah, that was my first landed publication. Was it still sci-fi or was it just fiction? Or? It was much more Philip K. Dickian. It okay. was about a guy who has an Escher staircase in his front garden mm-hmm. and uh, which doesn't sound like a story and it didn't have a beginning <laughs> and it didn't have a middle and it didn't have an end and it, but it did have a point to make and I think okay. it was probably a reaction to that rejection letter because <laughs> like, like see, the very metaphor of the story was look this is a thing without a beginning and middle and an end okay. Oh, okay. Um, so it was about well it was a it was a metaphor for growing up I think it was about being stuck in a loop and then breaking out of it or something right right um, okay it was very inspired by Douglas Adams as well I was a big fan of Douglas Adams sure. at the time and, sure. um, yeah alright so <laughs> Presumably you went to university. Yeah, yeah, uh, I did math. Were you, what were you studying? Uh, were I did mathematics. Trying? You did mathematics? Yeah, I did mathematics. You didn't do literature or English? No, I, I, at the time, I figured that anyone 
could teach themselves to write, but not anyone could teach themselves to do maths. (laughs) And I figured that anyone else who was writing would do literature. So if I did maths, I would write something different than everyone else. And so I would write better. But I think that's a very tortured logic. Yeah, I know. I think the reality (laughs) of it was that there are some people who are very just sort of naturally quite good at maths like Uh this it's like being bilingual essentially and so maths didn't really pose a problem for me until about halfway through my second year right okay and then about halfway through my second year it started to get hard and Uh I started to slide down like (laughs) the the grades um you know and I went from thinking yeah I'll definitely do a PhD in this into thinking no I'm really not going to do a PhD in this um and then on my third year I I did fine I got a perfectly degree but my third year I spent mostly writing plays okay um because I discovered that playing with actors was much more fun than studying math properly okay um yeah and they were very silly plays as well right right okay all right so you you're still writing and uh so what happened to you after you graduated uh i didn't know what to do so i but i very luckily landed a job as a math teacher in a private school in north london okay which was run by this really clever really opinionated guy who i love very dearly who only hired math graduates who couldn't teach because he used to say, in a very similar line of logic, actually, that he, he would say that he could teach anybody to teach, but he couldn't teach anybody math. So he okay. was tired of hiring teachers he who knew know. how to teach but didn't actually understand any math. So he got people with good math degrees who were capable of talking, uh-huh. and <laughs> okay. then he taught them to teach. Okay. And so I started that. I, I lived in a flat that was owned by the school because it used to be a boarding school, uh-huh. and lived Boy. in this 100-metre radius uh-huh. Of, of where I worked in this area of London that I couldn't afford in the slightest uh-huh. as a sort of scruffy 21-year-old and was in front of classrooms of kids who were far more sophisticated and erudite and intelligent <laughs> and well-read and just three times richer than I was. Right. And the only thing that I had was that I was way better at maths than them. Right. And it was this incredible boot camp experience <laughs> that I went from being yeah, quite nervous and fairly shy, I guess, uh-huh. to being quite good at standing up in front of groups of people and and sort of asserting myself at them you know you discover things like the best way to impress a class of 15 year olds is to be extremely good at mental arithmetic so i gotta keep these kids in their place yeah right so you know you'd you'd ask someone to do a calculation on their calculator and then you'd tell them the answer before they'd managed to do it and like talking about sort of 23 percent of 157 that kind of thing and you could get it to a couple of decimal places and the kids would look at you like like, they didn't look at you like you were a robot. And I think that's because it was basically a nice school. They looked at you with this kind of, if he can do that, what else can he do? <laughs> and that seemed to work quite well. So I really enjoyed teaching. And I did that for about five years. Right, right. Um, while I was kind of trying to write in the side. And I wrote a novel and it didn't get anywhere. And I, um, Yeah. But I kind of look back on that as one of the luckiest things that I, I think. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of luck in my life and I've had a lot of privilege in my life and those two things are definitely related mm-hmm. but and that landing that job was um was at least partly privilege I think but it was it was because I'd done the degree that I'd done um but that experience of learning to teach which was difficult even if the school was a nice school um has been the single most useful thing that I've done in my whole life like it taught me how to talk and it taught me how to speak and it taught me how to think faster than I speak but it also taught me how to like empathize with people Mm -hmm. and like in designing games I'm constantly using the skills that I learned in teaching sure like level design is what you do when you're a teacher and you're preparing a worksheet ideally you write 20 questions you teach them one idea you put it in front of them and you walk away 
Actually, mm-hmm. you don't. You walk around them and you right. focus them and whatever. But you create yeah. a certain pace and a certain like I want yeah. to get here and I have to help them along. Ex- you know, do yeah, X, exactly. Y, and Z first. And here's an example which is slightly harder than the one you've just seen, yeah. just enough to surprise you to make you notice that it's different, but not so much that you lose confidence that you don't know how to do it. And then here's an example that pulls that back a bit. And then this is a consolidation and all of that kind of thing. Um, hmm. Yeah, and we would do that like you know six times a day every day for five years. Right. And I don't, don't think I'm a particularly good level designer, but definitely everything I know about progression curves comes from writing trigonometry <laughs> worksheets. <laughs> everything. Um, right. And that's just re- a really bizarre route into thinking about game design, but it was definitely relevant. Yeah. So were you into games at all during this phase? Like, uh, teaching in your 20s? Yeah, definitely. I, I was still playing a lot of the indie text adventures produced by that online community. I won a couple of awards in the... The competitions they used to run. Oh, okay. So was, you, um, you wrote some. Oh yeah, no, I was writing independent text adventures. Okay. Um, in the inform. So when, you, when did you start doing that? Uh, my first one was when I was sixteen, which was a silly game about chickens, and okay. then I wrote. A, right. Yeah. Okay. So going back a little bit in time, I wrote a game when I was eighteen during my sixth form period, which was a massive puzzle game. I played uh, Curses, the game by Graham Nelson, mm. which kind of launched the inform platform. And I had some problems with its design, so I decided to make a puzzle game which was as big, but I felt better designed. That's okay. the sort of that's always been my approach to games: is to try and find something that everybody liked, decide not to like it, and then try to fix it. <laughs> right. And I'm not saying I, my game was better; I, I don't think it was. Sure. Um, Graham's a wonderfully genial writer, if nothing else, uh, but it's a great incentive. Uh, so I wrote a massive, complicated, difficult puzzle game called The Muldoon Legacy, which is right. a phrase I haven't uttered in 20 years. And I released it just the weekend before I went to university. So then I went down to university and I got oh. on with being at university. And at some point I checked into the bulletin board for the group and it was full of these hint posts and oh, people wow. requesting help for this game. You know, huh. It's a community of a couple of hundred people, I guess. And I had no idea. I had no idea at all. You weren't curious was... at some point, like how people were reacting to it? Or... I just assumed that no one would play it or mm-hmm. no one would look at it. Um, my first game had been kind of brushed off, by right. mostly. And then I think after that, that was quite big. And then I, I, I wrote about eight or nine of these games in okay. the end. Um, a lot of them for the IF competition. Okay. I think the one I wrote after that was about two telepaths on the run. And it was a small love story. And it messed around a lot with the interface so that it tried to produce a novel a novel as its output you typed your instructions in another window uh-huh. and it generated continuous prose uh, in a format that was not a million miles away from the way that 80 days ended up being okay. rendered actually but obviously the commands you were issuing were things like take this climb over there do that and it was right. all supposed to fit together and make sense at yeah the end, yeah so there was quite a lot of logic for you know inserting the word he when it was appropriate that uh-huh. kind of thing and to try and make it flow together and i remember I, I got the output of one playthrough of the game and i gave it to my friend who we were both writers and he read it through for me without me telling him that it was the output oh, of a computer game yeah. and i said what did you think he said well it went on a bit and it seemed to like <laughs> it seemed to obsess over the details but i thought there were some nice ideas there but i really think you need to edit it <laughs> and i said oh it's the output of a game actually and he said yeah i, I yeah i wondered because <laughs> i thought you were a better writer than <laughs> um and I remember that one. Uh, I remember that one for a couple of reasons, but it was also the first of my games that was reviewed by Emily Short, who oh, okay. was in this community at the yeah. same time and, and had started writing. And she absolutely tore it apart. <laughs> and um, in like a couple of paragraphs, we're good friends now, Emily. Uh-huh. But for a long time, I was really sort of like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna somehow. Um, yeah, she was a real figure to beat um, <laughs> at the time. Right. Uh, oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, 
And cool. So you could you kept making these type of, were you building towards something? Like did you have a philosophy of like how you wanted to make these type of games? Or I, what you I was to obs- do? I was obsessed with gimmicks at, at that time. So then I had a I had quite a successful game in that community which was built around the idea of a game that appears to be in a chronological order but actually isn't. So it was a series of scenes that were mostly not very interactive at all. But I managed to get a hacked version of the Inform compiler off um, a guy called Sean Barrett, who's actually quite well um, known yeah. in programming circles. Mm-hmm. He, he worked on Braid, I think. Um, but he passed me a copy of this compiler, which could do inline text substitutions and cycles, which yeah. Inform couldn't do, which is a feature now in Ink uh-huh. that comes directly from Sean. Right. And he may have got it from somewhere else, I don't know. Um, and I wrote a game using that. And the game itself was memento-ish, I suppose. It fitted together in little pieces and you kind of had a bit of a puzzle to work out what on earth was going on. But the use of varied text to shake everything up, I think was just eye-popping at the time because people would play it and it just felt very, very dynamic and very mm-hmm. responsive and very adaptive. And it would remember things that text games just didn't remember. Right. And I think that made everybody notice it. Yeah, um, and that won the IF competition in two thousand and one. So that was just when I was at the end of university. Okay, well, it sounds like you were kind of pushing to the edges of the forum. Trying yeah, to like I think that's true. I think stuff. because I wrote that massive puzzle game, I'd done all of the puzzle games that I could possibly. I could done <laughs> okay. all of the puzzles I could think of. So I, I did make one sort of simulationy kind of puzzle game, uh-huh. which had like heating liquids and freezing them and that kind right, of thing, right. and that was fine. But um, no, I was definitely trying. I was already at that point trying to make scenes in which everything the player did was narrative and everything that you did narratively moved the story forward so mm-hmm. um uh, in the the game i was describing the memento one which was called all roads there's a scene at the beginning where you're in a cellar and your hands are tied behind your back and it's an old wine cellar and it that stuck for me for a while as an example of what puzzles should be like mm. because if you think about it from the point of view of a text game player you can't pick anything up. You can't really do anything. So it's not obvious how you could possibly do anything at all in this scenario. Right. But if you actually think about having your hands tied with rope in a wine cellar, it's very easy to figure out how to escape. Right. You smash a bottle of wine, you cut the glass, use the glass right. to cut the ropes. And that was a lovely, natural, flowing piece of interaction. But when you do this, the wine, which is red, splashes on your clothing and people think it's blood. And then when you escape into the street, they think you're a murderer. Yeah. And that progression of puzzle into plot was just lovely and it was fluke and the rest of the game is not nearly as sort of elegant as that but that little moment made me think oh okay right there is a way to generate momentum through a narrative interactively which no one is doing right so long as everything you do is natural and reasonable and has a consequence and it doesn't matter that it's the consequence that the player was going for the player just wanted to cut the ropes on their hands because that's what they obviously had to do next right but the fact that what happened to them next was a consequence what happened before was gave it a certain something sure and that i think that that idea really stuck with me and then i spent 10 years writing a game called make it good okay which uh is a detective game um which was my answer to deadline oh really so it has seven npcs who move around on schedules and agendas who remember absolutely everything that you show and tell them and the the trick to the game is that it has a spoiler, which I, I don't want to spoil because I like it too much. But the trick to the game was that the boundary wasn't where you thought the boundary was. So if the you found physical the physical boundary, uh, the so the boundary of what the game would allow you to do. Oh, right okay. in a text adventure, you can always type anything in, but sure. at some point it won't let you do it. Mm-hmm. So when people meet a character, the first thing they usually type is hit the character, and the second thing they type is kiss the character because okay. they're trying to find out where the boundary is. Yeah, yeah. I so see. this 
This was a game where you would knock on the front door as the policeman. The grieving widow would answer the door. If you hit her, you would hit her. And then the policeman would come downstairs and say, what on earth are you doing? And the game would carry on for, you know, four or five turns before you were dragged off to the police station. And then you'd restart and you'd kiss her and a similar thing would happen. Um, And that was the, the gimmick of the game. So if you found the murder weapon, you could quite happily wash the blood off it. Mm-hmm. and the murder weapon was like a bread knife or something you could take it to the kitchen and replace it in the kitchen drawer you could then get the maid to make you a sandwich using the murder weapon okay. and all of these things would knock on and I, and the player was constantly trying things and going well where's the wall right? yeah where's the wall and what's the point of this <laughs> and that's really interesting because then you get to the end of this and that's um, why it took 10 years yeah this is why it took 10 years because okay. it really was ludicrous and I didn't have any systematic system at all it was all just um, Boolean flags. I had a file of 600 Boolean flags Jeez. for everything that you could possibly wow. do. You'd be like the hardest possible way, basically. Yeah, right. I mean, it just brute forced it completely. Yeah. Um, and But the, the nice thing that arose from that was that trying to solve the case, there wasn't enough evidence in the house. You couldn't possibly get a conviction mm-hmm. unless you started to fake the evidence. So once people realised that the boundaries didn't exist, what you could do was you could get an object from somewhere else in the house that had someone's fingerprints on it. You could take that, stick it in the corpse, make it bloody, hand it to your policeman and say, here's the murder weapon and it's got the fingerprints of the maid on it. And then they would arrest the maid. But did the maid do it? Well, that is a very good question. <laughs> and so and it becomes more intricate than that. And the, you know, the policeman will say, this isn't enough evidence. So, right. you know, you could generate footprints in the garden. You could generate fingerprints on a murder weapon. You could generate a motive. But, okay. The policeman would say, well, why would the maid kill this person? And you go, oh, right, I found some blackmail thing that was going on here and I've repurposed that. And the eventual solution to the game was to get, to construct a case against the maid, which she would confess to because you had constructed a case against her boyfriend to her independently. Oh, so she knows her boyfriend did it? But her boyfriend didn't do it. And neither did the maid. Wait. Someone else completely did it. But she believes her boyfriend did it. Yes, exactly. She believes her boyfriend, so she confesses (laughs) in order to protect him. And it was... That's that's not bad. That's interesting. It was brilliant. It was so good. And it worked. I mean, it didn't work when I released it. It was full of bugs. But it (laughs) it works now, I think. And... um, Okay. Yeah, the people who have played through it have generally described it very positive, and it has a it has a twist as well connected to that. Which, like I say, I don't want to spoil. But was, was there a period where you were released, like you released it for some people to play it, and but you were still working on it, or like did you try to like? No, I did. I did finish it, and then I released it, and then so you spent ten years, or whatever. And yeah. Like got it all done, and then yeah. you released it, and like and it mostly worked. Mostly and then worked, and right. then I fought, and then I firefighted it for a while. Wow. Yeah. Um, did that suck your energy from other stuff basically or I don't, like... I, don't I, I suppose it wasn't 10 continuous years I kept putting it down yeah, and yeah. like you know I'd write a play or I, and that was fine yeah. and, and I guess let me ask uh, yeah. I get a couple high level questions that I think might be interesting for you to consider which is um, so you're also at the same time you, you want to be a writer right yeah. you try to do a novel you're writing plays you know so yeah. on and so forth but at the same time, you're also but you're also doing all this IF stuff, yeah, right. And but this is all created just extra stuff you do as a creative outlet. Yeah, it's not your job, right? You're kind no. of going. To but I was a teacher. teacher. I was a teacher, and being a teacher is fantastic because you get these holidays okay. in which nobody asks you to do anything at all. Sure. So I was mostly. Yeah, I would do hardcore programming would generally be a thing I did in the holidays when I was sitting at home and my wife, my then girlfriend was at work. So I had nothing else to do. So I'd sit in coffee shops doing this. Um, But it was also, my my girlfriend wanted to be a writer as well. So we'd quite often just sit in pubs and write together. And that was the thing that we did. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, did you think about 
like how did you think about the value difference between doing like traditional literature work and doing interactive fiction work? Because I, I, I assume I, I may make an assumption here, but like just like any normal human, you grow up and like you see the past writing traditional traditional literature has a very high cultural value. Mm, right. So mm. it's hard not to be like, mm. well, that's the path mm. to success. Or in reality, you were you were doing actually cutting edge stuff mm. that like very few people in the world were like like working on. Yeah. You know, this this new field, like doing you know, yeah. some interesting work. It's much more likely that the work you were doing over here was going to actually have value instead of like, well, I'm going to write the world's 125,000. Sure, sure. But I mean, that that tension, I think, was was very present all the time. And I would kind of flip flop between saying I'm never writing interactive fiction ever again. And like, I'm giving up on novels. And this was like a periodic sort of back and forth. But I think it's worth remembering that at the time that we were writing interactive fiction in that community, nobody gave a damn about sure. it. The adventure game genre had died, yeah. having failed to deliver anything in the way of a good story. I must admit, I never actually found The Last Express when it was released. <laughs> I found it 10 years later yeah. and said, oh, holy wow. yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and that. But almost all adventure games had run their course yeah. by that point yes. uh, narratively. And um, the rest of the gaming kind of narrative gaming market as far as I saw it, was was making Tomb Raider and things like that, which were fine, but they weren't clever. Yeah. Um, so I would write these interactive fiction stories and I would try to give them to normal people to play. And yeah. of course, they wouldn't be able to play them even in the slightest. So you'd describe the experience you were trying to capture and they'd look at you basically like we look at poets, right? right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> sure. I'm sure you like what you're reading. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, if there had been a commercial outlet for that, do you think you would have like not I worried would have, about traditional I would have literature? Chased and... it. I would have chased yeah. it, absolutely. And I did. You know, I, there was... I almost got hired to write an interactive fiction piece for The Archers, which is a British radio long-running drama about okay. farmers. <laughs> okay. All right. It's extremely popular on Radio 4 in Britain. And okay. they were doing something for their anniversary. And I met a group of guys who had worked with Douglas Adams on Starship Titanic. And I don't know why they reached out to me in particular, but they did. But it never came through. It never even came close to coming through. Okay. But the the dangle of the offer was originally what actually made me decide to leave teaching and to try to genuinely be a writer because I thought I've got a gig, you know. Right, so yeah, I was yeah. so keen on it as an idea, I okay. threw away my job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was the right thing to do. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and one thing that like now I look at the 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 success of interactive fiction, and I, I don't know where it's going to be in ten years' time, but there are lots of kids kids there are lots of people <laughs> 20 to 23 24 yeah. writing for games like where the water tastes like wine yeah. like doing this job that i desperately wanted yeah. to do and i am so jealous that they're getting to do this <laughs> sure, in yeah, like no. you know in a in a highly visible forum and yeah no i can understand how it would be hard for you to justify <laughs> justify all this work you're putting in to the something that must have just seemed super obscure i mean i i had no idea that there was any IF going on at all, right? And yeah. I, I played Infocon games growing up, you know, so, you know, like, it's something I potentially could have been interested in, but, mm. like, I, yeah, mm. I assumed it was, like, as dead as... And there was so games. much good stuff. The, yeah. the, 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 the 2000s heyday of the interactive fiction community were, were just utterly superb. And, you know, I'm, I contributed to that, but I'm, I'm not even just sort of blowing my own trumpet, but, like, a lot of the ideas and a lot of the the breaking of the form that people were doing there is stuff that indie games are now doing mm -hmm. 10, 15 years later. Sure. And everyone is saying, look, this is groundbreaking. It's an adventure where you're just in someone's house. And you go, yeah, I saw that in 2000. Yeah. This is one with an unreliable narr narrator. Yeah, I saw that in 2000. Well, a lot of artistic um, movements have to go through 
this kind of period where like the interesting stuff is happening is basically a totally underground level. Yeah. Right. Like that's, yeah. that's a cultural thing. I mean, and it's happened I, over and over again. And I think a lot of the, the indie creators doing interesting stuff now have not seen any of today's adventures. So it's only me sitting there grumpily in the corner <laughs> saying, yeah, yeah, well, I'm not impressed by this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously they're executing it in a completely yeah. different way, but there are still lots of, fewer now, but there are still lots of ideas that I saw back in 2000 that I would love to bring bring to a wider audience and bring to a more accessible audience. Such as? Well, like, like the, I keep meaning to rewrite Make It Good as an okay. ink game, and I, it would be a horrendous thing. It took me 10 years in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know... I mean, it's, that's an audacious concept, I mean, for sure. Right? Sure, but it, I've delivered it once. <laughs> it is sure. definitely possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that kind of thing. But yeah. uh, also, there was a really good game by a guy called Andrew Plotkin, who... Um, mm-hmm hasn't released very many things that have really been visible i think but people who know him know him with some reverence he's an extremely clever and very artistic man um and he made a game with a beautiful unreliable narrator conceit okay um which i've never seen bettered like and so when people talk about the the clever use of an unreliable narrator in bioshock i kind of think no i'm really sorry (laughs) it doesn't doesn't even chart Yeah, yeah, yeah um and I would love to do something that uses that. Well, I can imagine that in interactive fiction, like there's a lot of potential for an unreliable narrator. Right, yeah. Right? Like... We used to theorize a lot um, that there was this triangle of the the player, the protagonist, and the game. Right. And they were all different, and they all had different positions. And there was the protagonist who was in the world. There was the game describing that world yeah. to you, and then there was the player's opinion. Yeah. And... But you often don't think, when you're playing it, you don't think critically about that stuff. Right, right? exactly. A lot of stuff just muddies together, right? Yeah, so... and all three of them sit in one place. And, yeah. you know, obviously there was a camp of people arguing that they had to sit in one place, sure. otherwise it was broken. And so as soon as you get a camp of people like that, you get a bunch of artists going, right, we're going to prize that open <laughs> just to annoy those people. And, and that was really, that was really fun. All right. Well, let me ask you the other question I want to think about. Because sure. so what strikes me is you're going through this, this period of time where you're writing interactive fiction, which involves a lot of technical work. Yeah. Um, and you have a mathematic, mathematics degree. Yeah. So you have, you know, a technical uh you know, scientific, I don't know what, you know, a mind capable of like thinking about engineering and that type of mm. thing. Why didn't you learn to program? So <laughs> I can program. Okay. But not very, not properly. Okay. Not well. I'm a, I, I mean, I, I do program. Yeah. If you could talk to Joe, who's the co-founder of Inkle, yes. he would say that I can program, but I'm not allowed to program. Okay. And that's the correct, <laughs> that, right. that I think is the correct description of it. So, right. um, I never wanted to become a software engineer and mm-hmm. I never wanted to I never wanted to architect anything properly. I just wanted to get the damn thing done. Right. So my general approach to programming was and kind of still is that I do the shortest hack I can see that will get me to the outcome right. that I want. And unfortunately I've been doing that so long in so many different contexts that now I don't see that even as a bad thing because generally that gives me the freedom to adapt and change and produce variations whenever right. I want them. So uh, you know, I like to think I'm a virtuosic programmer. <laughs> Probably the sort of programmer that no one should ever hire as yeah. a programmer. And that's well, there's a funny thing. I mean, I know, like, just looking at, like, the mod community for, like, the Civ games, that there's this thing of, like, you make the game and you set, you know, you expose 
a certain portion of a game for people to mod, right? And then there's, which means they can, there's certain stuff they can change and there's certain stuff they can't change. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain box, right? But then they figure out how to do all sorts of things that like you just can't anticipate and like, like how did you make this work inside yeah. the box, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But they're still, they like these people, yeah, I guess they could learn to program and like build the game from the ground up, but they're kind of doing something else. Mm. They're like, mm. they're taking your work to a place that you couldn't get to yourself, mm. right? Because they're just, they're just like, okay, we're just going to, we're only going to, we're going to work within these limitations, right? But because of that, that's, that'll suggest certain things to us that maybe you wouldn't have thought of yourself, yeah. right? And I think that's, that's a really good description, actually, the modding analogy of what we were doing when we were writing the text games that we right. were writing because we were using this engine and this framework and the parser language that had been defined and people would be constantly finding ways to hack the parser to do something else right so you know from varying the way the world state model worked to i think one of the last things i did was a library that did um predictive text when you were right. typing in and wrote that within the engine that infocom had been using right and like yeah programming but definitely a hack and a lot of the other people in the community were looking at that going how on earth have you achieved that <laughs> and i guess that's the kudos in the mod community is, yeah, yeah, yeah. is you want to be producing something that no one else can understand how you've managed to do <laughs> sure um, sure well I, I also i've learned over the years i think also something that's undervalued is like motivation is a resource mm. right like you're you can only work on a game as long as you're still motivated to do it Right. So if you're not able to find a way to get somewhere in a month, like, yeah, maybe you were, maybe you could teach yourself C and build something from scratch so you didn't have to have that system with like 600 booleans or not. Mm, right. Like yeah. that's theoretically yeah, yeah. possible, but like you, there, you didn't have the motivation resource to like get over that because you needed that the intermediate steps of mm. like you see you were making progress. Well, I think right? in general as well, I, I never saw any value in. Like, because there were people constantly building new parsers from scratch, yeah. and they were always significantly worse because they didn't have fifteen years of, sure. you know, accoutrement yeah. um, behind them. And I was never interested in that stuff. I just wanted it to. I wanted to take what was there and make it better. I didn't want to build a new thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and I got frustrated by the interface quite often because it was it was the most inflexible part of the whole thing. Um, but I, I have no graphical design skills whatsoever. I have a smidgen of them now from right, having right. worked with Joe for so long. But yeah, absolutely none at all. No ability at graphics. No ability at art. So <laughs> like actually Text Adventures was quite a safe little place Thanks for me for to do my experimentations. Right, really. right, right, right. Yeah, I think anything else would have would have been too confusing. Okay. All right. Well, let's jump to where you decided to quit teaching. And okay. Like try to, you said become a writer. So yeah. So mean... I, yeah, I quit teaching to finish a novel that I was working on mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully to get this job at the BBC, but of course I didn't. And I did that. I did, we had a summer holiday and I worked on a few things and I did a little bit of math consultancy or something um, and a, a lot of tutoring, which is a good way to earn money when you've been a teacher sure. and actually a perfectly viable way. Um, I think I must have finished Make It Good around then. It probably would have come out about then. Right. Maybe even later, actually. I can't remember. But then I... Anyway, then a friend of a friend of a friend of mine met someone from Sony Cambridge at a party. And somehow this business card percolated back to me. Hmm. And I emailed this guy and said, you know, would it, can I do work experience? 
at your studio? And they said, sure. And I went and did three days of work experience at Sony Cambridge. What's work experience? Work, like a specific uh, British term. Oh, right. Okay. Work experience. Uh, like internship? I guess or? you'd call it an internship, but it's generally speaking an internship where there's absolutely no payment involved. Right. And it's usually done by 16-year-olds. Okay. Um, I, I, but you were 26. Or yeah. Something. Yeah, I was. I don't know if adults ever use the phrase work experience, but that was the phrase that I used because I didn't know any better. <laughs> okay, right? So, right. you know, I applied and I just turned up and did three days of work. And I think they didn't know what to do with me uh-huh. at all. But they, they were working on this incredibly ambitious, interactive narrative project. Oh. Um, so I wrote some dialogue for them. I wrote some wibbly wobbly dialogue for them. And then my three days was up and I went away and... Then I got into a point where I just started phoning up the head of the studio every three weeks to right. say, do you have any work for me? And eventually he said yes, and he gave me a job. And he brought me in for an interview, and I met the creative director, who's now a very, very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing this project, and they thought they needed a designer who knew about interactive narrative. Huh. And I what, remember at the, in, the interview lasted for a whole day, uh-huh. because I think they really had no idea whether I was, was, was anything yeah. at all. And... Um, and I brought along a lot of my text adventures and we played through a bunch of text adventures with okay. them. And I, so I think that's how I got my job in the industry. I don't think it was that they looked at me and thought, oh, he's a well-educated white male. They may have thought that. I genuinely don't know. Right. But I think they looked at my text adventures and thought, this guy has something that we need. Right. And then I turned up and I started working on the interactive scripts for this prototype, which was canned within three weeks because it was <laughs> a ludicrously, ludicrously <laughs> okay. ambitious project. I mean, it was insanely ambitious. But within that time... I think I managed to convince them that I had some value. So then they put me on another project and then I was a general designer um, at Sony Cambridge working on PlayStation games. What what projects were these? So uh, they were all canned. Okay. All of them were canned. <laughs> um, right. Apart from one, which I started off as a designer on and I ended up being the lead designer on because there was only me and the creative director. Okay. Um, I got the job of lead designer when at a press event, I was demoing it to someone from Eurogamer and she asked me what my job title was. And I said, excuse me a moment. I went over to the studio director and said, I'm going to call myself lead designer. Is that okay? And he said, yeah, sure, whatever. So I went back and said, I was the lead designer. And I was, in fairness, the lead right. designer. Um, because the creative director did the creative stuff and I did the technical everything else and how buttons worked and things like that. Okay. Um, and that game was... was Something I'm not very proud of. Oh, no, I am proud of it. It was called TV Superstars. And it was a party game about being a reality TV show that played on the move. And it wasn't very good. Played on the move? The move controller. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, so we're we're at that point in time now. There's been enough canned projects to fill in the gap. (laughs) Um, And it was, yeah, it was one of the the move launch titles. And there was like a cooking game, which was a lot like the 3D object games that you get to see done in VR now actually okay. that kind of madcap stuff um, but it had a lot of clever state changes so like you could you could overcook things and undercook things and undermix things and there was lots of quite a sophisticated logic engine behind this cooking game right, sure. um, and then there was a fashion dancing game and stuff like that and it was just nothing to do with narrative at all. Yeah, so this doesn't sound like much writing or narrative no, or anything. No, no, no. Were you happy doing the work though? Or it like... was fascinating actually. It was really, really interesting because I'd never, you know, I'd always been working on my own and suddenly I was working in a studio setting with like uh-huh. 80, 90 people and learning about how animation worked and about how 3D pipelines worked and just just globbling up all this process information within a professional environment that I'd just never been in. Right. Um, and the people were cool. You know, the people were interesting, and even if the project wasn't. And the sense that we were making something that no one had ever made before was pretty cool too. Sure. So we were designing against game types that didn't exist. And I've right. always liked that. And that was where <laughs> I met Joe. 
Okay. And we just would talk about sort of interactive stories all the time. Was he into interactive fiction? Uh, I think he would say that he isn't into into interactive fiction okay. at all. Um, okay. Maybe he would. He was he was very much a fan of narrative in games. Okay, what did he like? Like, why did you guys? Connect? Uh, it was we mostly he was into adventure games. Okay, so Special we raved adventure about adventure games. games, and then like when Heavy Rain came out, you know, we both sure. played Heavy Rain and we talked about that a lot. And I think he had. Did you like Heavy Rain? Uh, I played it through to the end. That's not the same thing as liking it. Mm. Um, did I like Heavy Rain? Well, that's kind of... You have to pair it apart, right? Mm-hmm. Serial killer stories are dumb. Okay. There's no there's no getting out of that. They're dumb. They're, uh-huh. they're gratuitous and they're nihilistic and they're pointless and they're meaningless and they have no emotional weight beyond the fact that if you put people in awful situations, awful stuff happens, which is right. just the most primary grade observation of the human condition that it's a complete waste of time everything that heavy rain did outside of its serial killer trope was either dull like wandering around your apartment brushing your teeth or Mm -hmm. incredibly bizarre and sexist um or just violent in another form i I thought almost all of it was coming from a terrible place okay in terms of the actual interactivity i quite liked it um, the conversation system was fairly simple, but it was fine. I liked the general progression of scenes. I liked the fact that I was playing multiple characters. I liked the fact that one of those characters turned out not to be what you thought it was. Mm-hmm. But it was really noticeable that every time it tried to do anything ingenious, it always fell over. So like, there was a scene where you went somewhere and you had to remove all the evidence that you'd been there by scrubbing fingerprints off everything or yeah. something before the police came. And it was such a total failure of a scene. Because... Like, well, I played it like an honest player and I, I got to the point where I had to run away. So I went around the room pressing the scrub button on yeah. everything I could remember that I'd touched and I left and then it said, ah, you didn't scrub this thing. So the police got me or whatever. And I just thought, I don't care. I don't <laughs> care about your stupid memory game. Like, <laughs> what am I supposed to be doing in this story? Am I like evading the police in a hunt for a serial killer or am I tidying up? But like, what, mm. what is, who thought that was a good idea? I get that you want something for me to do as a player, but... Yeah. And it was a shame because everybody had played the first five minutes of Fahrenheit and said, wow, this is incredible. Mm. And that is the same scene. You're cleaning up a bathroom to hide a murder, but really? it's so much better executed. Why is it better executed? It's just tight. It's really, really tight. It's all in front of you. It's absolutely visible. You can see exactly what you're doing. So you you're there the in you the moment. Yeah, but you still have the stress of actually doing it and uh-huh. looking it through and it feel, and then the people outside are kind of bringing tension. And it, it's a subtle thing to do, I think, with the presentation of it. But it's also, it just cuts to the chase. Like, you're not doing anything apart from fixing this scene before you get into trouble. Whereas in the other scene, I thought I was doing something else. Yeah, so, of sure. course, I wasn't paying attention to So, it's to like a I random mini game that just popped up. Precisely, exactly. It, yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, Heavy Rain must have been an appalling thing to produce it must have been incredibly difficult to get made i hate to think how much sure. cutting they had to do yeah. so i don't really mean to attack anyone sure. on the team i don't know anyone on the team yeah, yeah. um i mean it's, it's, it's with those games like at some point they just say just we like we got to fill some space here right we need yeah. some <laughs> we need something for you to do we don't do we're not yeah. gonna make a two-hour game I and mean, that's the thing that's different now is like that's a possibility yeah right yeah um, that's really true um all right anyway so you guys you guys hit it off you like yeah. adventure games, you, you were the IF guy. Yeah. yeah, and I kind of, I sold him on the idea that the that text adventures had done all these interesting things that no one else was doing. Okay. And... It probably was a tall order. Well, I don't know. He was kind of, he was excited about it, I think. Okay. Um, and, but he was convinced that it was possible to make games which were 
beautiful and more accessible and like that people could actually get stuck into like i'd try and help him play a part of game that i said was really good and he'd uh-huh. get nowhere with it right and that was really instructive for me and i realized that parser games were never going to get outside of their niche and i hadn't really accepted that yet yeah. at that point um yeah that's i mean that's the change basically that happened with interaction fiction interactive fiction right yeah. like they had to get away from, i mean yeah parsers yeah. were just not, exactly not a and, thing that could work. you know a bunch of people have been doing choice-based stuff but what no one i think had done before us and I don't want to say that we were a significant or the significant change though I, I like to think we were a significant change what no one had been doing before we tried to do it was to make something which had the pace and the rhythm of a parser game mm-hmm. but that used choices okay so that it was easy to play but it had that same back and forth that a okay. parser game had because once you're good at a parser game it's an incredibly responsive experience sure you're in the moment the whole time and it never stops and there's always something else for you to do and that's a wonderful wonderful feeling so long as you don't type in the wrong command too much right. so obviously with choices you don't have the option to type in the wrong command right so you just have to streamline that down and i think that rhythm is the thing that all of the games that joe and i have been doing have been moving towards um, right. to try and emulate the feel of a parser game but then 80 days was actually quite different uh, again, sure. but still within the same space. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, all right. So you guys were you guys were talking about stuff you could do with narrative, but you were working at Sony. Yeah. So what what happened? Well, at some point we decided that we were either going to do it or we weren't going to do it. Right. Um, I don't think there was a cat. Oh, there was a catalyst for that. We were working on this wonderful, wonderful move controller game that was set in space. That got. I don't actually know how much I'm legally allowed to talk about it sure. or not, so I'll skimp it. But. Um, there was a lot of politics around it. A lot of people who were very powerful wanted it to work and they all had a different idea of how it was going to work. And as a result, it didn't work. It sounds very (laughs) plausible. Yeah, right. (laughs) Like companies like Sony work, but anyway, go on. You know, they produced some wonderful first party games, but this was, this was ultimately not one of them. Yeah. Um, And at the end of that project, they, what did they do? They, did they fire a lot of people? I think they, yeah, they fired a lot of people. Okay. And, um, but they didn't fire me. They moved me from the downstairs to the upstairs to work on Killzone Mercenary on the Vita. And I think I'd already decided by this point that I was going to leave. Joe had already left. Okay. Um, on his own or did he get fired? Uh, no, no, on his own. On his okay. own. He, he, he decided to, he'd had enough and he was going to start his company. Oh, okay. So you're um, going for it. Yeah, he was going for it. And he tried, did he try, he could try to get you to leave with him? Or? No, we sort of had a plan. We sort okay. of had a plan. Um, anyway, I did two weeks on Killzone Mercenary and that was it. That was okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So then I I left and I became a co-director of Inkle. I think we'd planned it all. I think okay. we'd planned it all. And it was um, the two of you? Basically? Just the two of us. Just the two yeah. of you, okay. And we started off with the idea that we weren't going to do games at all, but we were going to approach publishers, book publishers. We had this bizarre idea that book publishers had money, which... Uh, we have done quite a lot of research into this now, and it turns out it's not very true. Um, they do have a lot of waste, though. They have nice big offices and lunch breaks, but they don't have any... I don't understand how that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I was still attracted to that cachet that you mentioned earlier of right. of books, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and we figured that we could bring our knowledge of interactive fiction to books in a way that would be far better than anything a book company could do on their own. Okay. That would be our USP, and then we wouldn't be competing with games, and we wouldn't have to worry about the technical overheads of art or anything like that Uh because we're working in a forum that didn't need it and it was about when the ipad had just been released okay or at least the version two that everyone liked so we felt look here we are this is the right moment it's the right time it's the right product and we went and met pretty much every publisher that was in the uk um and they were all really interested in digital products and absolutely none of them were willing to commit to any money (laughs) to invest in anything right um 
until we found one tiny independent publisher in London that, uh, and one guy at that publisher who had met a writer called Dave Morris, who had been pitching him exactly the same idea from the creative end. He knew what he wanted to write uh-huh. and he'd written Choose Your Own Adventure books, but he didn't have an engine or any code. Uh-huh. And then he talked to us and we had an engine yeah. and a language because that's the thing that we'd built but we didn't have a project. And he was like, oh, well, this is easy. Right, <laughs> he sure. put, put us two together. And that was Frankenstein, okay. which was Inkle's first product, which okay. I think we made £4,000, something yeah. like that, which was nothing. Right. $4,000. Right. Like, you mean we, from the sales? Uh, no, from the advance. The advance? That's how much they gave us. That's, that's how much they gave us. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, and we were like, well, it's okay, because it's going to get us started. And sure. it's going to get... And we, we're spending our own savings at this point anyway, just to stay right. alive. But... Um, I and, see. And, yeah. But so you guys, um, when you guys started the company, you you did commit like we're going to build something from scratch. Is that right? Or... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. Joe. So that's a pretty I, big step. I think so. I suppose Joe wanted the challenge of that. Like we were building everything in Xcode, and he wanted to build something for Apple devices. He's always been an Apple fan, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't want to use anyone else's text adventure engine. I didn't want to use anyone else's interactive fiction engine. I knew them all by this point quite well, and they were all. Why didn't you want to? Because so far, you had. Yeah, I was... Well, I mean, I had been writing in Inform, which is obviously a parser language, and you can't turn that into a choice-based language. So I was looking at the choice-based languages, which there was Undone, which is a JavaScript framework, which was very programmatic. I I don't think I would think that anymore, but I thought that at the time. Um, And I think Twine was around, but it hadn't really taken off yet. Okay. So... So you didn't have a lot of options, basically. I guess I didn't. Yeah, I guess I didn't. But I had also had a really clear sense of what a choice-based language ought to be like. Mm-hmm. You know, some really simple things, like you shouldn't have to put strings inside quote marks because I'm typing text, so why doesn't the <laughs> computer just do that for sure. me? Um, so the first version of Ink was a Perl script that I wrote, which just pretty much put quote marks around strings and then, like, converted a plain text format into JSON, and then the JSON was read in by Joe's stuff. Um, and he wrote the first version of the Ink player. Right. Um, yeah, he did a lot of work, actually. I suppose we both did. I think that compiler took me ages to write because I'm, I'm not a programmer, so I have no idea how to use Perl. So right. <laughs> this thing sort of grew as this ungodly Hydra. Had you other. used Perl before? No. You, so you taught yourself Perl to do Well, this. I wouldn't say I understand Perl. Well, I, I looked at some examples and I managed right. to make a Perl script that worked. Wow. And then I okay. managed to make it a more complicated Perl script. No, it was you, a terrible Perl script. Had you used, I like, guess, scripting language before? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Um... So we we did that, and that that conversion of the Ink compiler lasted us through all the sorcery games and eighty days. So for something which I should never have been allowed to write in the first place, it's just generated about two million words of interactive content. Wow! Um, but yeah, for the last few years, Joe has been saying we need to get rid of this piece of software. It's terrible. <laughs> We're a proper company now, and so that's that's one of the reasons we we rebuilt Ink from scratch properly. Okay. So your side was like the content side yeah that's right and his side was like how it's going to be presented to the exactly exactly so i was doing the writing and the and the tools for writing Mm -hmm. and um at the time i wasn't actually doing the writing because dave morris was doing that for that project but i was the one thinking about that and then joe was doing the the interface design and the way that it would look and feel and kind of doing graphic design which is something he'd always wanted to do um i think both of us had the experience working in the studio context that once people figure out what your most valuable skill is, they don't let you do anything else. Yeah. So Joe's most valuable skill was he was a solid programmer. So yeah. he wasn't allowed to do anything to do with graphics or art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, my most valuable skill was I was a technical designer who could, like, do flowcharts. Mm. So I wasn't allowed to write anything. <laughs> and um, 
and I think that was what what was so attractive about starting a company was the idea of doing all of the jobs. And we had a pretty perfect split. I mean, we still do have a pretty perfect split that like between us, we have enough skills to get something entirely made that's sure. beautiful and fun. Right. You know, you cover um, the, yeah, the exactly. And we, and we meet quite well in the middle. So like Joe is definitely interested in narrative design and, you know, we talk, we talk about that a lot and the designs and exactly what the UI would be and that sort of thing. But when it comes to the actual words, you know, you take a step back. Right. Okay. All right. So you worked on Frankenstein. Yeah. And, uh, um, I mean, how did that go? Like, uh, it came out. It was relatively well reviewed, but in general, it was I mean, marketed. Not, not necessarily like how it performed. Oh, but like, like what's the right way to put this? Mm. Like, you were you were trying something new. You were trying a choice based game, right? Yeah. Or was uh... he wrote this script and then and he wrote it in this version, I think, and then. Oh, I didn't really do very much. I did quite a lot of monkey work. I just kind of got it into the format. But that was okay because I was a designer and that's what designers do, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we do data processing, um, largely in my experience anyway. And then Joe made this beautiful app and we argued about icon designs. And that was fine. And we released it and it was fine. And then it, I think the point where we really started to, to take ownership of our process with interactive fiction was when we looked back at Frankenstein and started to, to critique it. Uh-huh. And the biggest thing that we noticed about it was it was a fairly flexible narrative, but we had presented it in a way with absolutely no UI. It's It basically works like the, the text flow in Sorcery with absolutely nothing else. So it's just story pages, choices, story pages. Right. And it was designed to look like a book and to fill in like a book. And right. what we wanted to do was make a book that writes itself. Yes. And that was fine, but it meant that people played it and they said, well, I, I don't know why I was choosing anything. It doesn't really matter what I pressed. Everything was fine. And they weren't reading it and they weren't thinking about their choices and they weren't thinking about the choices they hadn't taken and how that might have been different. And what we found how, was... I mean, I guess I remember our time visualizing this a little bit. Like, I mean, yeah. if you if there's some text and then you make some choices and yep. there's some more text, I mean, that's kind of the... That's just the typical way it works, right? Like, yeah, but, but it wasn't right, so feeling it. The, the significant thing is the amount of text. Uh-huh. So the the way that Dave was writing it was like a choose your own adventure book. So yes. if you imagine on an iPhone screen, that's about a page, that's about a screen and a half's worth of iPhone screen text. And when yeah. that appears on an iPhone, people read the first couple of words, then they would scroll down to the bottom and they would read the text of the choices. Oh, okay. And I don't think they would read a damn word of any of the rest of it. Yeah. If the choices made no sense, they might flick up and read the bottom paragraph for a bit of context, but generally speaking, they wouldn't. And then they'd press the button and they'd press one of the buttons because people like buttons so much <laughs> that if you give them a bunch of text to read and some buttons, they just press the buttons. Right. And So it was just too long. It was just too long. Okay. Uh, but it was also, I think even if it had been cut into shorter sections, because then we did a we did a pirate game which didn't get released for years and years, but we did a pirate game adaptation next um, off one of Dave's books. And I took the text and I chopped it into small bits and I put choices every chunk. And it was definitely better because there was about a paragraph's worth of text and Uh then some choices. And that was okay. And that is playable, but it's still not very good. And it still had the same problem that Frankenstein had that you didn't really... It was somewhere between you didn't believe your choices were making any difference, even when they were clearly significant, like... Mm-hmm. go left or go right go to this island go that island pick up a key or don't take it with you you know things that clearly were changing an internal game state right people didn't feel like Is they that, mattered did, you, did the game need like the physical visible game mechanics outside of the text i'm not like, sure you have it, it, like i mean like in 80 days and sorcery right, it's yeah. obvious what those are but, i think like, what those games needed was was a permanent reminder of consequence. Now, whether that's a mechanic or not, I'm not actually sure. I always get wobbly as to what a mechanic is exactly, but uh, it doesn't really matter. 
what what we found was, and I think the most significant thing that we saw from Frankenstein was that if you showed someone a story graph of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which looks like a, it looks like a, just a set of blobs and a spider web, essentially yeah, of blobs sure. and lines. If you showed them that, then people would say, "Ooh, that looks complicated." And right. then when they played Frankenstein, they really enjoyed it. Yeah, because they believed that it was branching. And they, they had that image in their mind. Mm-hmm. So that led us to the question of how do we integrate that graph into our app in a way that doesn't look like we're showing you a graph? And of course, the next thing that we did was we adapted the Sorcery series. And that's exactly what we did with the Sorcery series. The Sorcery series is a map with the choices coming out of that map because the map provides a graph of the story that says, look, this thing is definitely branching. Right. So they believe it because they see the village they didn't go to. Precisely. They're exactly. like, there's a story here that I missed. Because... Exactly. Exactly. I'm, it must be significant because there here is this map. And I can see, if if you think back to how sorcery is laid out, when you make a choice, you get kind of a marker in one place and a marker in the other place, and you go to one of them. And the other one was, uh, we actually changed this later, but was dropped as a rewind marker. Mm-hmm. So you could say, actually, I can click one click and reverse everything I've done and go that way instead. And that was deliberately there to say, that's a point that you could have gone to that you didn't, mm-hmm. to reinforce that idea that there was something and there still is something right. that you haven't seen. And that that changed everything. Now, I mean, Sorcery had plenty of other things, like it has a combat mechanic, it has sure. a spellcasting mechanic, it has items and inventory and all of that stuff. So I would say we definitely overcompensated, <laughs> but that's fine. It's a perfectly good game. But I think that fundamental addition of a map that proved, that proved our case, and coupled with the shorter paragraphs okay. and the micro choices that with every choice not really mattering that much, but the accumulation of them somehow mattering, that was what unlocked the design for us. And once we'd hit that in Sorcery 1, pretty much everything we've done since has just been, right, we know this works. We can do this again and again and again. Right, um, okay. right up until Heaven's Vault, which is... Um, which is very different, actually. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about sorcery then. So okay. How did that project start? So uh, we were talking to book publishers before Frankenstein, uh-huh. and a friend of a friend uh, knew Steve Jackson, the English game designer, right. who's not Steve Jackson, the American <laughs> game designer. Yes. Well, um, yes. <laughs> and he put us in contact with him. And I was a massive fan of Steve Jackson. I loved his books when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Um, and I particularly loved the Sorcery series. Sure. So we went to have a drink with him in his local pub. We travelled all the way down to London and we showed him our prototype. And he's a very, very nice guy. And I, I, I have a lot of affection for him. And he, but he didn't know us from Adam. Uh-huh. And he sat down with us. He bought us a pint of beer. He looked at our prototype. He listened to our pitch. He said, come back when you've sold 10,000 copies of something. Okay. And then he went away. And so we sold 10,000 copies of Frankenstein. Okay. We came back and we said, we sold 10,000 copies of Frankenstein and we're making this pirate game and it looks like this. And the pirate game was a little bit more beautiful than Frankenstein. Yeah. And Steve said, okay, well, I've just, the the sorcery option, the license was with another app developer. It's just come up. So do you want to give mm-hmm. it a go? You know, we'll, we'll go, we'll, we'll go split on the royalties. Mm-hmm. What would you do with it? And so we said, oh, you know, we'll have a map, we'll have a sword fighting system, we'll take the dice away because nobody likes dice, we'll put in this, we'll do that, the other. And he said, yeah, sounds good, off you go. And at that point, Steve did something which I think for an IP holder is truly incredible. He stepped back and he didn't bother us again until after the game was released. He literally just gave us the whole thing. He didn't even take a look at it before you guys were going to release it? He took a bit of a look. He played through it about a couple of weeks before we launched. Right. 
And the one piece of feedback, I think he won't mind me telling the story, the one piece of feedback that he sent me was he said, it looks fantastic, I love it, it's very nice. There's one point where you use the word fart, and I wouldn't have said fart, I would have said breaks wind. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, okay, Steve, I shall change that for you. Um, But he didn't mind that, like, you know, I'd, I'd taken his book and... All of the content in his book is in the app, but I've ripped it to pieces and filled yeah. in a million words besides. And yes, yeah, so I I play yeah. game I play game books, but I never played this. I played like the Lone Wolf series. I never played sure. this. I never played the Sorcery series. I didn't know it existed. Um, but you know, I was like, oh, interesting. There's this book series I never heard of, and it's going to you know there's an app of it, so I'm gonna, you know I'll download and try it out. And so I started playing it through it, and I'm like, well, this is sort of like a game book, but book, but there's there's a lot of stuff here that I don't believe they could have done mm. in a book. Mm. So what is this, right? Mm. Like, I was very confused by, like, what was going on. That's a fantastic reaction. I love that reaction. That's okay. exactly the reaction that we, we, we would have wanted. We got a lot of people going, well, you know, this is adapted from a book, so you didn't really do any work, did you? And you'd be like, um... Yeah. Well, I'm a, luckily I'm a game designer <laughs> programmer, so I, I <laughs> yeah, can tell exactly. there, was, there was a lot more going on here. Yeah. How um, exactly do you think we did this? <laughs> um... Yeah, but it was it was a funny one because we were very we were worried about the IP. We were worried about the fan base. We had no idea how big or how loyal or how visceral the fan base was. So we didn't really want to change that much. So it was very much towards the end of the development of the game when we started to feel like maybe we should add a few alternative paths that weren't there in the book. Because uh-huh. when you when you actually map that book out, the first sorcery book, it's pretty straightforward. There isn't uh-huh. that much variation in it. So we added a little bit here and a little bit here, mostly because the map artist who'd drawn the map had drawn such a beautiful map. We thought, well, look, here's an interesting little puddle in the forest. Let's let's make it so you can go there. And then we just came up with something to put there. Mm-hmm. And every one of those additions that we added just gave that gave the game just that little bit of extra richness, just more of those places where you thought, oh, well, do I want to go here or do I want to go there? And I think once it was only once Sorcery was complete that we started to notice that the map that we'd added purely to give a visual graph, and because it looked pretty, right? right. Everyone likes maps. Um, Did the original book not have a map? Uh, it had a sketchy map at the front. Okay, But, but I mean, that's the thing, is everybody likes the fantasy map that you get at the start of a fantasy book. Yeah. But it's always a disappointment because it's full of all these wonderful places you can't you go, can to, go to. Yeah, yeah. And actually in our game, you can go to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, a big part of the hook of the game. And, mm-hmm. and it has that nice 3D effect that was something that Joe thought of. Yeah. Um, but I think what we found that the map did as well was it added quite astonishingly a strategic layer to the game. Sure. Because you would say, well, here's this village I want to get to. Uh-huh. And in order to get there, I need to go down this path and this path or that path and that path. So people could plan ahead, which you absolutely cannot do in a game book. Yeah. Game book's biggest design failing is that they're totally arbitrary and on a whim of, of whatever the writer happened to do yeah. at the time. and It's an adventure and you're along for the ride. Yeah, yeah and that's as good as you're going to get, yeah. right? And But that the addition of a small amount of medium-term strategy to your route planning was huge, and we hadn't seen that coming at all. Um, and I think that that was really exciting when we noticed yeah. that. I mean, that's, that I mean, that's something clearly you played with more and more. Right. As you went through exactly. the series. Right? Yeah, well, I think once we realized that the map was the heart and soul of the experience or, right. or the spine of it or whatever you want, um, how did every you... iteration of the sorcery game was trying to see how else we could abuse yeah. that interface. How did the ma- did the magic system work much differently in the book? Like, so in the book, it... you the magic system in the book was brilliant, right? Absolutely okay. brilliant. Um, they sold you a spell book 
uh-huh. of 50 spells, each one of which has a curious effect and might need an, I- an item to do it. And then the instruction said, read the spellbook, memorize it, put it away. And then when you play the game book, you're not allowed to look at it. Whoa. And then when you cast a spell, it would say, which of these six spells do you want to cast? Uh-huh. And you would just have to go, I think, I think this was. one might be this. So then they have these names which are sort of reminders of what they do, uh-huh. but they're slightly off, off kilter reminders. Right. So, you know, gum is the one that sticks people to the floor. Right. And it would lead you to six different paragraphs? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's Every time that they were used. It was, though, a lot of the time... It would say, well, for this, you need a staff of bronze. And I happen to know there are no staff of bronze in this entire book. So right. <laughs> the spell fails. Um, and Steve didn't have that many places where spells were used. There were quite a few, but not yeah. that many. So one of the big changes that we made was trying to insert spellcasting absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Because I we... mean, spellcast was all over the place. And there was so there were so varied and so many things you could do. It was just, I was like, there's no way that yeah, it would right. work like exactly. this in the exactly. book. Like... And I think that was, the, that was the point where the series really started to fly. Whereas when we realized that we could we could insert spell casting all over the place, we could insert the more ridiculous spells all over the place, and we could handle the consequences of those things narratively. And the weird thing about it is that the spell casting interface, which you know, you, you have these three letter spells and you just you, you tap the buttons to it's like a sort of keyboard essentially right. you type in from the options that are available. The spell casting interface is just a choice, right? It, like from a from the construction point of view, from the point of view of the ink script that's underneath, right. there's ten spells maybe. Yeah, you know, it's more than six than there were in the book. There's ten spells here, and the player is going to pick one of them, and the interface will ensure that you definitely pick one of them. Yeah, but but the fact that you're typing them in and exploring your way through what those spells are somehow makes it feel much more constructive. Mm-hmm. So when you finally go, oh, I think that's the spell for talking to animals, and I've got this bizarre creature in front of me. When you choose it, it doesn't feel like you picked one option from ten, I think. It feels a little bit more like you are actively going out into that world and deciding to talk to this animal. So then when the animal starts complaining to you about how it's got a store stomach, and you can talk it down and convince it to go away, it feels much more like you solved a problem rather than you chose an arbitrary choice from a choice of arbitrary lists. I never could make up my mind what what I felt about that UI. Because, you know, obviously, like... The information is all there. Mm. It could just be a it could just be a menu, right? Mm. Um, but at the same time, I do feel like it would be too dry if it was a menu. Mm. But at the same time, I do feel like I, I'm generally not a fan of like, especially a game you're play a lot. You know, it's something you're gonna do a lot. Mm. Whereas like I'm doing a lot of arbitrary presses mm. to find mm. information. No, I agree. But I like one of my core thoughts about design, as much as I have any, are that a good design has got to be. I always say this to Joe and he always tells me off for it, but I'm right and he's wrong. The a good design has to be sufficiently frustrating. That's mm. vital. We are not making tools. We are not making sure. apps. We are making things which have got to be slightly annoying to use. That's really important. When you play table tennis, if you could mentally project the ping pong ball, the game would not be fun. It has to be done using an annoying hitting a bat on a ball because that whole fact that it's slightly difficult to do is the entire game. So when you're designing a UX in a game, and obviously we think about UX really quite a lot, it's got to involve slightly more work but not too much work and finding that balance between too much friction and not enough friction is absolutely the entirety of the experience because it's what the player is doing especially on mobile which is a platform that i love because it's so tactile because the player like when the player is moving across the map in sorcery that is a usually a binary or a tertiary choice where you're just picking a choice of where to go but 
as I'm sure you remember, the way that you play it is you draw a wiggly line from your dude to the flag where they're going, and then he slides along that line. And the reason that you're drawing a wiggly line is that forces the player to trace a path across the map for the entire game, which somehow makes them own that path. And when people play it, they always follow the path. They always follow the roads. They don't go in the straightest possible line. They want to draw the path of the... They want to draw the line of the path on the map, even though it doesn't matter in the slightest. Right. And the fact that they want to do that, I think, tells you something, that we are not just delivering an interface into the game system. We're delivering some kind of experience which is valuable in its own right. And I think that goes for the spellcasting as well. The typing of the letters is obviously incredibly annoying if you want to see the list of spells and take a rational choice. But we right. don't. I don't think that's what people want to do. They don't want to compare all eight options. They want to find something. Right. And when they found it, they want to go, that looks cool, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. So I think the ideal... I think the spellcasting was actually our second iteration. The first one you might not have seen. When we first released Sorcery 1, we had a different interface for oh, spellcasting. Really? It was kind of... It punched holes in the paper and there were letters behind and you had to kind of drag them into slots. And it was very beautiful, mm. but people couldn't quite get a sense of what was available or right. what was visible and... It was also, it wasn't very helpful in terms of telling you what the spell was, whereas the new interface tells you straight up. Yeah. Um, and we were playing with that memorizing mechanic that was in the original book. Yeah. And mean, this system, yeah. like, to me, it works because you, it, it narrows down very quickly. Right. right? You exactly. choose one letter and then you. you yeah. Know, it, and it, it, that's what I mean about it being sufficiently frustrating. Yeah. It is basically quite helpful and it's quite easy to explore through. But it, it I'm, and I'm not even saying it's perfect, but it's funny how much difference that stuff makes. Yeah. Like, the fact that it's relatively pleasurable to use as well. It makes a nice ding noise when you press the buttons. I think these things are important. Right, right, right. Um, even though the eventual outcome of it is, yeah, pick one from ten. Well, I'll, I'll take part in a little foreshadowing here. We'll get to we'll get back to the frustration part when we get to the inventory management in 80 days. <laughs> <laughs>